Well, it's been wonderful to be with you in warm and sunny Albuquerque. It's almost swimming weather, right? Well, if you're God's child, if you have been redeemed by His blood, if you have been forgiven by His grace, you haven't just been forgiven, you've been called to a brand new way of living. You've been called to live by faith. Now here's the rub. Faith isn't natural for us. Doubt is natural. Fear is natural. Worry is natural. Looking over the fence and envying the life of somebody else who seems to have it easier than you is natural. Pushing through your mind that seemingly endless catalog of what-ifs trying to solve all the problems you may face before they come is natural, but faith isn't natural for us. And I'd like to think with you this morning, how is it that God works to craft faith in us, to in fact make us people of faith? Well, I want to make a distinction for you that maybe won't make sense right now, but it will later as we work through the passage. There is a huge Yes, significant difference between amazement and faith. You can be amazed by things that you actually do not put your faith in. Uh, My family would go year after year to the Jersey Shore for a family vacation in the summer. We live in Philadelphia. We're about an hour and 15 minutes from the Jersey Shore. We would go there to a little family kind of community, Ocean City, and uh, pick medical waste up off the beach. (laughs) That's Jersey. Uh, And there was a community down uh, the shore called Wildwood, good name, it was kind of a wild place, with a huge boardwalk, and on that boardwalk were big piers, and on the piers were big amusement parks. And our children would talk us into going to one of those amusement parks one of the evenings of our vacation week. And at one amusement park, there was the most amazing ride. I guess you would call it a ride. It was a big, tall metal girder, maybe 40 or 50 feet. From it were hanging elastic bands. The base of that elastic band was a big pouch. It looked like the universe's biggest slingshot. And some otherwise sane human being would pay $7 to have himself strapped into that pouch, and they would pull him back, and launch him over the night over the Atlantic Ocean, back and forth. Now that ride amazed me. The first time I saw it, I was sort of like this. Transfixed. My family went off to ride rides. I stayed there. They came back to get me. Now, amazing. But I can tell you for sure, you will not strap Paul Tripp into that pouch and launch him over the Atlantic Ocean in the night. It's one of those rides where you text somebody, I paid $7 and almost died. (laughs) There is a huge, even significant difference between amazement and faith. Let me say something about the Gospel of Mark that we find ourselves in. I love the Gospel of Mark. I love how fast-paced and hard-hitting it is. Mark puts in your face the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He doesn't leave you with any room for neutrality. And there's this other theme that sort of courses its way through Mark. It's that 
Christ has collected these followers, these disciples, and his intention is not that they would just be recipients of his work of his kingdom, but they would be instruments of the work of that kingdom. And if they were going to be that, they, they must be men of faith. And he's working to craft faith in them. And he would do that by introducing the disciples to some kind of difficulty. And in the midst of that difficulty, Jesus would reveal his glory. There's a, there's a bit of a divine equ- or gospel equation that courses its way through Mark. Here it is. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. DP plus DC equals EYN for you mathematicians in the room. Well, we find in the beginning of this passage the disciples in another moment of difficulty. They're trying to row their way across the Sea of Galilee. They're facing an impossible headwind, angry seas. They're in a situation way beyond their ability, a situation they cannot solve. They've been in this situation for many hours. If you look at the larger time clues in the passage, they've probably been rowing for eight hours. It's a mess. And as you, as you read Scripture, you ought to read Scripture interactively. You should not read Scripture passively. And when you see the disciples in this mess, you ought to ask yourself, how did these guys get themselves in this mess? It's, it's dangerous. It's, it's exhausting. It's discouraging. It's difficult. How did they get themselves in this mess? Well, look at verse 45. Perhaps you would be tempted to think maybe they were just unwise. Maybe they're just full of themselves. Maybe they've been disobedient. Maybe this was another foolish choice. And none of those things are true. If you look at verse 45, it says, Immediately he, Christ, made his disciples get in the boat. This moment of difficulty is Christ's moment of difficulty. This moment where the disciples are facing uh, this impossible headwind and this angry sea and this moment that's way beyond their, their natural ability and natural will, wisdom is exactly where Christ wants them to be. And when you read that in Scripture, you ought to ask yourself the question, why? Why would Jesus ever want His followers to be in a moment like this. I thought he was a God of grace. I thought he was a God of mercy. I thought he was a God of love. What's up with this? Well, Jesus knows something about the men in the boat. He knows how self-righteous they can be. He knows how full of their confidence in their own strength and wisdom they can be. He knows how much they, they can be committed to the, their own little kingdoms rather than the work of his greater kingdom. So hear this. Jesus will take his disciples where they haven't intended to go in order to produce in them what they could not achieve on their own. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. It's grace. It's grace. I think there are moments where we're going through difficulty and we're crying out, where is the grace of God? And we're getting it. No, it's not the grace of relief. 
And it's not the grace of release. Yes, we get those in pieces, but largely those are to come. It's the grace right now that we need, the grace of personal transformation, the grace of personal refinement. I think that we better become faithful and committed to encourage and teach and preach Hear this term, the theology of uncomfortable grace. Because often God's grace comes to us in uncomfortable forms. If you're God's child and you're going through difficulty, you must not name that difficulty as a sign of God's unfaithfulness and inattention. You must not bring God into the court of your judgment and question His faithfulness and love. Those difficulties are, in fact, a sure sign of the zeal of His love. You are being loved. He will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. That's grace. Grace. Now look what happens next. Verse 47. It says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. You're way too passive. (laughs) Don't try this at home. It's a remarkable moment. And the minute you, you read that Jesus sees the disciples in this mess that they're not able to solve. It's exhausting, it's frustrating, it's potentially dangerous. They can't get over to the other side because they're facing this impossible headwind. The minute you read that Jesus' response to that is to get up and begin to walk into that impossible headwind, walk across that angry sea, there's two things that you must immediately observe. Here's the first one. This is Lord God Almighty who can do anything with his creation that he wants to do. This is the king. Because the average person doesn't walk on water. This is is Jesus revealing who he is. It's Jesus revealing his glory. If I want to walk against the wind, I can walk against the wind. If I want to defy the elements, I can defy the elements. If I want to walk on water, I will walk on water. I'm the Son of God. I'm Lord God Almighty. I created these elements. If that doesn't excite you, you're seriously comatose. Look, if what Mark wants to do is demonstrate that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, argument over, case done, deal done. This is the Lord. But there's something else you should recognize. The minute Jesus takes the walk, 
you know what he's got in mind. Think about this. The minute Jesus takes the walk, you know what he's got in mind. Because if all Jesus wanted to do was relieve the difficulty, he wouldn't have had to take the walk. All he would have had to do is say, peace be still, the wind would have died, the waves would have calmed, and the boys in the boat would have happily rowed to the other side. The minute Jesus takes the walk, you, un- you begin to understand that he's not after relieving the difficulty. He's after redeeming the men who are in the middle of the difficulty. This is a redemptive moment. Now, when you're going through difficulty, what is it that you want? What is it that you esteem in that moment? What is it that you pray for? I will confess to you, when I'm going through moments of difficulty, I may not be thinking about redemption. I'm just saying, God, if you love me, please stop this. It's not in this moment that that Jesus is delivering less to his disciples. He's actually delivering gloriously more. Now, the, the passage says that Jesus meant to pass by them. It doesn't mean that he needed a GPS. He's, he's taken a big enough arc by the boat to make sure that all of his disciples would see him. Now, now think of what's happening. The, the wind is still blowing. The waves are still crashing. The boat is still bobbling up and down. Nothing has changed in the scene but that this one is now injected himself in this moment. I believe that all of the miracles of Christ are meant to picture the gospel. This moment pictures everything the gospel is about. Everything that the gospel is about. Now go back to your Bibles. It says then, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they immediately stood in the boat and sang worship songs. Is that what your Bible says? That was the reverse slandered version. It says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Here, this magnificent moment where Christ is revealing his glory to the disciples is not a moment of rest for them. It's not a moment of peace for them. They're not heartened and encouraged. In fact, they're terrified. They don't recognize him. They don't see him uh, for who he is. They think they see a ghost. These guys are in the boat and they seem completely unprepared for this moment. Utterly unprepared. It's, It's a bit of a shocking thing. They had seen him raise a little girl from the dead. They had seen him uh, feed a large multitude with a little boy's lunch. They had already seen him calm another storm, yet in this moment they seem utterly unprepared for what Christ would do for who Christ is. Verse 
What about you? Think with me for a moment. When you go through another moment of difficulty, what happens to you? Do you question the love of Jesus all over again? Do you wonder if God is near all over again? Do you panic and give way to fear all over again? Do you envy the life of someone else all over again? Do you wonder if it's worth it to pray all over again? See, you've also seen his glory. You've also been graced by God revealing his love and his mercy to you. You've experienced the stunning wisdom of his word. You've known the grace of his presence. Have you learned your lessons? Or or when trouble comes, do you panic all over again? What happens next is a beautiful picture of the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus. Notice the picture now. Jesus now is standing next to the boat. The waves are still crashing. The wind is still blowing. The boat is still bobbling up and down. Nothing has changed. And and the disciples there are terrified. And Jesus doesn't begin to scream and yell at them and say, You'll never learn. I've shown you my glory again and again. You'll never get it. I've had it. Get out of the boat. I'm going to get new disciples. No, no, that's not what Jesus does. In in sweet, tender grace, he doesn't move away from them. He moves toward them and he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. I believe in this moment that that Jesus is actually taking one of the names of God. He's saying, don't you understand? The I am is with you. The one on whom all the covenant promises rest. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The I am is here. The I am is here. The I am is here. Don't you understand what's happened to your life? It's impossible for you ever to be in this kind of moment alone because the I am has invaded your life by His grace. The I am is here. The I am is here. The I am is here. Hope is not in your own strength. Hope is not in your ability to figure out the circumstances. Hope is not in your track record. Hope is not in the fact that people like you and your finances are working and your your job is good and your car runs and your, your house doesn't need repair and all those kinds of things. Hope is found in this one thing. My life has been invaded by the grace of the one who is the I am. That's where hope is. If you're facing 
the exhaustion of a very long parenting day where your children seem like they've conspired to be particularly rebellious. And it's late at night and there's another fight that you have to break up. You better walk down the hallway and say to yourself, I'm not alone in this moment. The I am has invaded my life by his grace. If you're facing, as a young person, rejection from friends that you never thought would reject you and the hurt is deep inside of you, you better say to yourself, I'm not alone in this sad moment. The I am has invaded my life by his grace. You're facing physical sickness that you thought you'd never face and you're all too aware of your body and every new pain you wonder if it's the encroachment of the disease. You better say to yourself, I'm not alone in this moment. The I am has invaded my life by his grace. If you've lost your job because some executive 100 miles away has made a decision to end the division, your division of the company and you're driving home in your car and you don't know what the future's going to be and you don't know what you're going to say to your family, you better say to yourself, the I am is with me. I'm not in this moment by myself. If you're facing the difficulty of old age, and your body feels weak and you wonder if death is not far away, you better say to yourself, the I am has invaded my life by his grace. You, you, you see, in these moments, you will always preach to yourself some kind of gospel in these moments, you will, you will interpret these moments and you will say things to yourself about you, about life, about God. And I would ask you this morning, when, when you're facing difficulty, what is the gospel that you preach to you? A gospel of aloneness? A gospel of poverty? A gospel of inability? A gospel of futility? A gospel of partiality? A gospel of impossibility? Or do you preach to yourself the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Hope is found in the fact that Emmanuel has come. His presence is with you. He's invaded your life by his grace. It's impossible for you to be alone. It's impossible for you to be left to your own resources because the I am is with you. What do you say to you in those moments? You see, the disciples were terrified because in that boat they were identity amnesiacs. They had lost complete sight of who they were as the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, you're, you're always living out of some sense of identity. You're always saying things to yourself about who you are. 
I love, love, love the story of Israel in the Valley of Elah. They're facing the Philistine army. They're the army of Israel, the army of the Lord Almighty, the Most High God, who said, I will deliver these nations into your hands. I am the Lord. The very first day of battle, the whole Philistine army doesn't move forward. Only one soldier moves forward, that great, large man, Goliath. And he basically says, send me your best. And the army of Israel does this. Back to their tents to commiserate. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Now they're doing that because they're drawing a false spiritual equation. Here's their equation. It's, it's little us against this great big giant. Now who do you think is going to win? David shows up. It's a bit of a humorous family story. He's there to deliver lunch to his soldier brothers, bread and cheese. They sort of make fun of him. Tell him to go back and take care of his little lambs. And David asks the, the fateful question, why aren't we fighting? And then shockingly, he says, I'll go. He doesn't say that because he's arrogant or full of himself or delusional. He says that because he knows who he is. And you know that he's not, not saying that because he, he's arrogant because he says this, Talking of God, he delivered the lion and he delivered the bear and he'll deliver this Philistine this day. David is saying that's the equation is this. It's not puny little me against this big giant. It's this puny little giant against almighty God. Now, who do you think's going to win? I'll go. And when I read that story, when David begins to walk into that valley, I hear the timpani begin to roll. And as he, as he moves forward, the drums get louder. Here he is, clothed like a shepherd with a wimpy shepherd's sling and some stones. It seems crazy. And he marches with confidence because he knows who he is. He knows what he's been given. He knows who he serves. And all of a sudden, he loads that sling the drums are now roaring, and as he rolls a sling, the cymbals begin to crash. You just know there's going to be some kind of carnage. He lets loose of that stone. It hits the temple of that giant, knocks him out, and David runs up, grabs his sword, and cuts off his head. There's a beautiful painting in the Metropolitan Museum of New York City of this young man holding this huge severed head by the hair, glory of God. See, what is the gospel that you preach to you in those difficult moments of life? When you're facing family things you thought you'd never face. When you're way beyond your strength and you're way beyond your wisdom. When you feel alone. When you wonder if no one cares, if no one understands. What is the gospel that you preach to you? What identity do you assign to you? Do you say, this is puny little me against this huge mountain of difficulty? Who's going to win? Or do you say, I am the son or daughter of the one who rules everything that would make me afraid? I have been 
drawn into eternal relationship with the one who inhabits this moment by his grace. I am not left alone. I am not left to my resources. The Lord Almighty is with me. Why would Jesus want his followers in this storm? Here it is. Sometimes you need the storm in order to see the glory. Because our eyes can be so blinded to the glory of God. There are moments where he brings us into things that we would have never wanted for ourselves. So we see his stunning glory again. We remember who he is. We remember who we are. And we live with renewed hope and courage. That's grace. It's not grace as a cool drink. It's not grace as a soft pillow. It's uncomfortable grace, but it's grace. Now go back to the passage. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. It seems like an eternity. He's finally in the boat. The wind ceases, and it says, and they were utterly amazed or astounded. That's not a compliment. And you know that from what is said next. For, or because, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Amazement is when you've been taken beyond the normal categories that you have to explain or understand something. Amazement is when you're taken beyond the normal categories you have to understand or explain something. Faith is an assent to God's revelation of himself that actually changes the way that you live. There's a huge difference between amazement and faith. Let me give you a rather silly example of amazement. Pretend with me that we're standing outside of this building and a low-slung just amazing-looking European sports car pulls up. It's bright yellow. It's about this high at its highest point. That throaty 12-cylinder engine uh, dies down, gullwing doors open, and a man slithers out of the car because he's been more uh, laying down than sitting down. And you're you're pretty impressed. You walk around the car... uh, You ask him if you could sit inside of it, and you do, and it seems more to you like rocket ship than automobile. And when you get out, you you can't resist asking the sort of impolite, impertinent question. You say, can I just ask you, how much did this cost? And he says, well, about $450,000. You're pretty impressed. His cell phone rings. Uh... He says, I got to go, hops in the car, gulling doors, doors close. That throaty engine roars to life. He puts it in gear, and it levitates out of sight. <laughs> now you're amazed. You're, you're hoping the guy next to you saw what you saw. You see, there's a, there's a significant difference between amazement and faith. You can be amazed 
at the grand sweep of the redemptive story in the Bible and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the tight logic of the Word of God and not be living by faith. You can be amazed at the wonderful worship music that you hear Sunday after Sunday and participate in and not be living by faith. You can be amazed at the clarity of preaching that you hear again and again and not be living by faith. You can be amazed at the love of your small group and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the wonderful resources that are available to us in our generation and not be living by faith. There's a huge, significant difference between amazement and faith. It's not a compliment when it says in Mark that these men were amazed. And Mark can't resist making an editorial comment at the end of this passage. He doesn't make many of those. And he says, because they did not understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. What it means when it says they did not understand about the loaves was they hadn't learned their lessons well. Christ again and again had revealed his power to them, his wisdom to them, his grace to them, his glory to them. Yet in this moment, it's as if they had learned nothing. And, and Mark explains to us why. It's, he says, because their hearts were hardened. It's, it's actually a a physical word picture, the picture of a, a stony heart. Imagine if, if I had a stone in my hands right now and I would squeeze it with all of my might. What do you think would happen? Well, look at the size of my arms. Nothing. That, that, that phrase, hardness of heart, is a, is a picture of resistance to change. Uh, the... A stone isn't malleable, it's not soft and, and moldable, it's resistant to change. And scarily, the Bible presents Hebrews 3 as one of those passages that it's possible to be a believer and be hard of heart. Resistant to change. And why would one be resistant to change? Because we're all too satisfied with where they are. The disciples were more content. They were, they were more focused on who would get the best seat in the kingdom than they were on the transforming grace that was really the hope of their lives. They were more wondering who was the greatest than worshiping the grandeur of the Messiah that had made himself known to them. They were hard of heart, resistant to change. Luella and I gave birth to a son who just didn't understand the concept of gifts. Well, Luella actually gave birth. We would, we would buy little Justin a gift, and this is invariably what would happen. He would tear open the box, discard the toy, and play with the box. It drove me crazy. That happened 
birthday after birthday, Christmas after Christmas. So I, I decided one Christmas that I was going to win. I would find the quintessential Justin gift if I had to stay out there forever. I dragged my poor wife Luella out much longer than was rational to look for this gift. We finally found a toy that seemed like it was made for Justin. At Christmas, when it came time for him to open that gift, we were surely more excited than he was. He tore it open like a little boy would, not thinking of recycling, and, and actually began to play with the toy. I had such feelings of parental victory. I went into the kitchen to get something to drink, to celebrate my victory. Uh, got engaged in a conversation with another member of my family. And after several minutes, went back into the living room. And he was sitting in the box. Now, now maybe you're thinking at this point, why is, why is this man telling us this cute family story at this point in the sermon? Well, hear this. You have been given the most awesome gift that could ever be given. It's a gift that's gorgeous from every perspective. It's a gift you could never earn, you could never achieve, you could never deserve. It's the gift that every human being who's ever taken a breath desperately needs. It's the one gift that has the power to change you and everything in your life. It's the ultimate essential gifts gift of gifts. It's the gift of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm deeply persuaded in the face of being given that gift, many of us are content to play with the box. We're content with a little bit of theological knowledge. We're content with a little bit of biblical literacy. We're content with episodic moments of ministry. We're content with a little money in the offering plate. But we're not in a combination of deep neediness and celebration, holding on to that gift of grace with both hands and saying, I cannot believe that I've been given this gift. I want to hold on to this gift. I want to study this gift. I want to be with people who esteem this gift. I want to understand this gift. This gift is life to me. I've been given the gift of grace. It's not the thing that now forms the values of my life. It's not the perspective that I look at everything in life from. It's not the thing that gets me up in the morning and motivates me. I'm not saying I can't believe I've been given this gift of grace. Now, sadly, our lives get eaten by other values, get propelled by other dreams. We're content to play with the box. You see, there is a huge, even significant difference between amazement and faith. God has made his glory 
known to you. He has invaded your life by his grace. He will lead you where you haven't intended to go so that you would become, by his grace, a person of faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Paul, I, I think I may be heart of heart. I, I may be content with a little bit of biblical knowledge and a, a little bit of Sunday morning Christianity. I don't think I, I always live as a person of faith. I, I do go through moments where I doubt God's goodness. I wonder about his care. What I would say to you this morning is, if that describes you, you don't have to hide in fear. You don't have to wallow in shame. You don't have to run away in guilt. Because Jesus is your righteousness. Your acceptance with your Father is not based on your performance. On your most faithless day, you are utterly accepted by him because Jesus is your righteousness. And in your struggle of faith, don't run from him. Run toward him. There is grace for your struggle. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, I know nothing of this life of faith. I don't think I've ever trusted in this one who is the I am. I would say to you, don't hesitate. Do that now. Run to him in confession. Run to him in neediness. If you don't know how to do that, Grab somebody next to you, but don't leave this room without doing it. There is mercy and grace for you in your time of need. He says, you come to me, and I will never turn you away. You see, the bottom line is this. Even faith is his gift. And so in weakness... I can run to him. Weakness, I confess that I don't always learn my lessons. Weakness, I confess that I don't always remember my identity. Weakness, I I don't always see his glory. In weakness, I do envy the life of somebody else. In weakness, I wonder if he's partial. But in weakness, I don't run from him. I run toward him because everything I need is available in him. They're all gifts of his grace. And he will continue to meet me by that grace. Sometimes uncomfortable grace because that's just the grace I need. Because sometimes it actually does take a storm of life to reveal once again to me his awesome wisdom and power and glory and grace. Even that storm is grace.